0: hi welcome to things in jars a podcast about oddities curiosities and all the weird and wonderful stuff that dwells in museum stores
1: i'm melissa and i'm poppy and we're both curators here to take you behind the scenes of the museum with us as we explore cool artifacts and answer your questions about what it's really like to work in a museum
0: Welcome back to another episode of Things in Jars and this week the theme is poison. <gasps> Poisonous collection.
1: Poisonous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we're really hyped for it. We love. We love this. This is a good yeah, subject for us.
1: So good, as it turns out, that we're going to have to make this into a two-parter. Hope no one's mad about that. We're not mad about it.
0: <laughs> it's classic us. We got overexcited
1: and we had too much to say. Sure, you'd all do the same in our shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Please forgive us. So yeah, this this week's episode is part one. And next week, you'll be getting part
0: two. And this week's item spotlight has been chosen by Poppy. So what have you got for us?
1: I'm going to be sharing with you the story of the Zena mermaid. Oh love it sounds great it's a personal favorite a long time personal favorite um so it should be good stick around for that
0: before we get into the rest of the episode we'd just like to clarify that opinions expressed in this show are our own and things in jars is not affiliated with the museum in which we work although we will be referring a lot to its wonderful collection should we start as we always do by talking about our own collection of course we start as we always do we are
1: sticklers
0: for habit of course we do why am I even asking (laughs) so how did you actually find searching our collection for this because I really was stuck at first like I almost came I almost came to this episode with nothing
1: Yeah, well, I like how you said it first, because that suggests there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't really have anything. I was just going to talk more broadly about the fact that our collection is really big, and we do have taxidermy, and we do have textiles, and we have homewares, and a lot of our stuff is from the 19th century, which is a time when poison was everywhere. So Mm. although we might not have anything that I can obviously connect to poison. Um, It may well be that some of our items were treated in arsenic or mercury in the case of taxidermy. Um, Mercury was a really common thing used in felting. Um, And I have to share this fact with you because it's too good not to bring to the podcast, but um, symptoms of mercury poisoning were paranoia, hallucinations, shaking. um, And because of course, You would treat felt and other animal products in mercury. Um, Hatters used them a lot. So, hat makers, they were constantly exposed to high levels of mercury. So, that is where the saying, mad as a hatter comes from.
0: (gasps) No way. Really? Oh, my gosh. I did not know that. Wow. How cool is that? So, is that what inspired the mad hatter?
1: I think so. I mean, I can't speak for Lewis Carroll, but... I think he knew feasible. he
0: knew that mercury poison was a problem. <laughs> yeah,
1: wow, yeah. that is a good, that's a
0: strong factor to start this podcast with, Poppy.
1: Thanks. I mean, I can't, I can't bring you any Wordsworth trust poison, but I can bring you facts. Um, I also found like some really amazing things from other collections. As in, I know we're not going to get into that section yet, but just while I was kind of looking into collections that have hidden poisons in, because we could have. I'm sure things have been tested. Um, We don't have that much that would really be a risk that I can think of. Someone commented on our Instagram post the other day, though, of the Napoleon's wallpaper and was like, because it's green, and was like, oh, has that been tested for arsenic? Because apparently Napoleon, one of the suspicions around his death was that he died of arsenic poisoning from his wallpaper. Um, And I was like, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) oh, no. (laughs) Presume so. Wow. I think it's probably safe, (laughs) (laughs) I really to so.
0: I mean, I mean, we would know by now if you were poisoned, wouldn't we? We'd know. Yeah.
1: And I think, like, the advice is generally just to wear gloves anyway, so it doesn't yeah. get on your skin. And it would be in such a low dosage because the fragments are so small that I'm sure I would be okay, fingers crossed. Who knows? I think it would be fine. And they may have had it tested way, way back when... Or when we received all of that stuff, if it was a concern, I guess so. You've
0: taken that in a completely different direction. (laughs) I was, I was taking it really literally, whereas
1: the oh, well, that's good because I could not find anything literal at all. I tried that first, so I'm really like cannot wait to hear where you went with that.
0: Well, I was, I was very secretly pleased with with what I found, but yeah, no, that's a really good point. Hidden poisons in museum collections. You're right; they're everywhere, everywhere.
1: Let's talk a bit more about that in once yeah. you've done yours. Okay. So what, what did you find? How did you succeed where I failed? So
0: I was actually trying to find an object about another subject, not in our collection, just a subject in the world. And it suddenly occurred to me, I was like, do we have anything about this in our collection maybe? And I typed in a single search term and lo and behold, we did. So there is a print by Louis Charon, a popular book engraver and painter who lived from 1655 to 1713 of Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah, I wanted to find something about Cleopatra and I hadn't realised that there's not a lot of museum artefacts that relate to Cleopatra out there. I kind of thought there would be a lot but it turns out that there's maybe a few busts or sculptures of her. There's a lot of coins with her face on but there isn't really anything that kind of really jumped out to me. So I was like I wonder if the Wordsworth Grasmere collection has anything about Cleopatra and it did so it had this print. So this enabled me to talk about Cleopatra. So Cleopatra of course is the eternally famous last queen of the Ptolemaic province of Egypt and she ended her own life in defiance to the Roman Empire by letting a poisonous snake bite her. So it was the ultimate big diss to Emperor Octavian. Soz, you can't... (laughs) Not on board with you. So, yeah, so when you look at this print, it is a bit like, what? Because it depicts Cleopatra and Antony in this sort of scene, but Cleopatra is sitting on a throne and she's dressed in like this Elizabethan dress with a big rough collar on. (laughs) And she has a corset on and flowing skirts. And I was just a bit like, that is not how I would expect to see Cleopatra. But I suspect what it might be is more of a depiction of Shakespeare's play, Antony and Cleopatra, rather than, you know, a historically historically accurate depiction. Okay. And then actually in the collection as well, there's also a couple of other engravings. So there's one from 1804 by someone called Anne Seymour Damer, which depicts the moment Cleopatra allows the asp to bite her. But sadly, there isn't an image on our online collection for that, so I couldn't actually see what that looks like. So, yeah, this, this image of Cleopatra kind of clutching the snake to her is like an iconic moment that has been recreated in art, in plays, in films, in TV shows, over and over and over again. And I looked into... A little bit more about her and people are actually still searching for her tomb as in like right now people are really looking for it and it's within the ancient ruins of Alexandria which is now underwater due to earthquakes and rising seas and and other things and I just like found that quite fascinating the fact that no one's been able to find it yet and may never find it because it's proving to be really really challenging and a lot of people have kind of had suspicions about where it might be or theories or a really really strong belief that it might be in a certain place but it just hasn't been found and her suicide took place in August 30 BC such a long time ago and she was 39 years old and it's believed that her suicide was took place either inside her palace or her tomb and the thing about the snake is a bit of a myth. And apparently at the time her physician didn't explain the cause of her death. Though the popular belief is that it was a asp or a cobra that bit her. And apparently no snake was found with her body at the time, but she did have tiny puncture wounds on her arm.
1: <gasps>
0: Spider. Well, I don't know. And I, I also don't <laughs> I don't know what ancient Egyptian sources that's coming from, but you know, apparently that's that's what happened. So there's obviously a lot of intrigue and mystery around it. And apparently she was entombed with Mark Antony. and they've never they've never been found. And will they will they ever be found? Some people believe that she actually kept it a secret on purpose, so that she never would be found.
1: Yeah. I kind of hope she doesn't. I feel like yeah. she wouldn't want to be found. She
0: Give that woman some yeah, privacy. She... To the very last, she was in command of her own destiny so yeah true so that is Cleopatra so I'm glad I got to talk about her because I really wanted to but just couldn't find anything that really struck me but then Wordsworth Grasmere had me covered
1: it always delivers
0: (laughs) so yeah that's, that's really
1: that's what I got that's a very out of the box way to take it I like how you did that I typed in venom and I didn't get anything for that
0: oh venom oh that's a good one I didn't think to type in that I just typed in Poison. <laughs> I tried that first. And then after that,
1: I was like, arsenic. And after that, I was like, mercury. And then after that, the Etna So is there Atmer. nothing for
0: arsenic? Nothing for mercury either? But I think there's
1: three results for arsenic, but they're all letters where you can't see the full letter. Uh... So one of them's like a letter from William Calvert to someone saying that he is presiding over a case of arsenic poisoning or something like that so that sounded like it would have been really interesting but i couldn't find the letter anywhere online yeah and i don't know too much about who william calvert was no so I don't know if he would have had widespread appeal on the podcast but (laughs) we could have been making some breakthroughs who knows who Who knows? knows william calvert could be the topic that we all need he could be the missing piece to a puzzle or something like that letter could have been really important to yeah. solving a crime if anyone knows more about william calvert maybe get in touch let us know what i'm missing <laughs>
0: yeah why would he be investigating an arsenic poisoning case
1: or i'll just wait till i'm back at work and i'll read the letter in full
0: yeah and then we'll let everyone know yeah we'll
1: update you all if it <laughs> turns out to be really groundbreaking or something mm. to this idea of working with collections that are quite dangerous um i found some really good examples from some other museums i wanted to share so many collections around the world will have them and it's impossible to get everything tested for traces of toxic substances yeah i saw in the york castle museum they have a green dress a beautiful like elaborate ladies evening gown i guess and it's green because of course it's covered in arsenic it's just that's how they got the green dye. They mixed arsenic with copper, um, yeah. and when the ladies would sweat, the arsenic would get into their skin through their sweat, and it would just slowly poison them over time. Crazy. And and the curators, when they handle it today, like they put it out on display, and they have to wear gloves. You have to be really careful, as you'd expect. And there's also this um, amazing book, which is called. Are you ready? Shadows from the Walls of Death and it's a book oh of goodness. arsenic wallpaper samples that was compiled by a surgeon um, from the American Civil War and it's in the University of Michigan yeah. library and there were apparently loads of these copies made with actual real live arsenic wallpaper samples in because this doctor was trying to prove how harmful these dyes and pigments were to human health and there were loads of them made but most people destroyed theirs Um for the future, for people working with these things. But I think these libraries that have kept their copies, have they've laminated the pages so that you can't actually touch the wallpaper and they limit how long you can have the book out for. Um, and you're not allowed to, of course, like lick your hands or touch your hands or anything, touch your mouth um, while you're working with the book, which you shouldn't do in an archive anyway. That's just basic rules of engagement. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they have... Clearly a plan for using these things. I think they're very carefully monitored. But how cool is that? And the, the wallpapers are beautiful. I had a quick look online. Um, there's not, they're not fully green or anything. There's only a little bit of green dye in there. But to think that was so
0: Yeah, that was fatal, enough. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that, that was enough. So I wonder if there is anything. I can't think of anything really green in our collection. We do have some textiles, but thankfully the Wordsworths were not fashionable people. A bit plain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't have much colour about about their person. They wouldn't have had any fancy
1: dyes. No, they wore a lot of wool and a lot of beige. (laughs) So we should be alright. Oh, wow. But I mean, even things like, you would even get arsenic in wine stoppers and just children's toys if they were coloured. So anything green. I bet in some of our books, we could potentially have traces because it it was used as like a pest repellent as well in certain fancy books. So we might have it. Yeah,
0: I I did see a few articles when I was researching about Places that had collections of poisonous books.
1: Yeah, isn't it crazy? Yeah,
0: it is. It's just never occurred to me that something like that might be in my working world. Isn't that crazy? I suppose when you think about it like this, being a curator actually has its hazards, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, we work with weapons too, let's not forget. Sharp things, rusty things, poisonous things.
0: So after all of that, we must now hear about some of the things you found, Poppy.
1: I have picked for my first item a teapot that belonged to one of Britain's most insidious serial killers, whose name was mary Cotton. And this, this teapot is in the collection at Beamish Museum. And in this teapot, mary Cotton would mix arsenic tea that she used to kill, it's believed, upwards of 21 people. Um, And these people were primarily her own children and her many, many husbands.
0: I love it. Murderous, poisonous teapot. Mrs Potts coming at you. I just knew you'd pick something really great like this. So please go on.
1: So Mary-Anne Cotton, who was she? She was born in 1832 in County Durham um, to a poor family, um, so like many working-class women of the time, she married young, her first husband was called William Mowbray, I really hope I'm saying that right, um, and that was in 1852, and together the couple have eight or nine children, it's not quite sure, the documentation is a bit sketchy, um, and all but three of them die of gastric fever, Interesting, remember that detail, gastric fever. And after that, William takes out a life insurance policy to cover him and the remaining three children. Interestingly, sadly, unfortunately, pretty soon after, William mysteriously dies, as does two of the three surviving children, all of gastric fever. And Mary cashes out on the insurance money from the life insurance policy. After the tragic deaths, Mary begins work as a hospital nurse in Sunderland, and she pretty speedily marries a patient. In fact, it looks like less than a year after the death of her husband, she marries again. He then dies the next year, sadly, tragically, and Mary collects money from a life insurance policy that he left behind. After her second bereavement, Mary then finds work as a housekeeper for a man called James Robinson who happens to be a widower with five children. Pretty soon after, um, Mary arrives, one of the children dies of gastric fever. Gastric fever's... I mean, it's rife. It's everywhere. What's happening? Why does everyone Mary comes into contact with get gastric fever? It's rife. (laughs) Mystery. Pretty soon after the bereavement again of, of the child, um... Mary goes to visit her ailing mother who dies also about a week after Mary returns. She's like the walking plague. She literally is a walking plague. Um. Mary then returns to live at the Robinson house with the daughter from her first marriage, the only one that didn't die from gastric fever. So she goes to live with Robinson. And then more children die. Shocking. Including her own daughter this time. Dropping light flies. Surprisingly, though, Mary then marries the widower, Mr. Robinson, and they have some more children together, but only one survives. The honeymoon phase, though, seems to be cut short pretty soon because Robinson suspects that Mary's stealing from him, and he also grows suspicious of her repeated request to take out a life insurance policy. Oh, Mary. She knows what she wants. So she was thrown out and then was homeless. But all was not done for Mary. She had a few tricks left up her sleeve and that's all we have time for for this week but stay tuned till next week for part two of mary's murderous machinations (laughs) mary's
0: mary's (laughs) murderous
1: machinations yeah just stay tuned to see what where life takes her next what else she gets up to (laughs)
0: it's time now for our object spotlight of the week so tell us poppy tell us all about the mermaid of zenna
1: so zenna for those who aren't super familiar with british geography um is a teeny 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 tiny town it might not even be a town i don't know what the official ruling for a town is but it's really tiny um a tiny town just up the coast from St. Ives in Cornwall. And I have I've been to Zenna twice now. And The Legend of the Zenna Mermaid kind of... It's, it's quite famous, I would say. like I remember reading about it in the Ingo books, which I have plugged countless times now on this podcast, I think, at least <laughs> twice. Um, but that was my first introduction to the Zenna Mermaid, and it was the reason I wanted to then go and visit Zenna, because a carving of the mermaid exists in the church in the town. And it's really not what you'd expect at all. In my mind, I thought it would be kind of a polished wood, beautiful mermaid on a stand or something like that, like an, like an ornament. It was not. She is carved into the side of a seat or a chair. Uh-huh. And it's really hard to make out what's what because it's quite, I think it must be really old. It's quite worn, there's a lot of scratches over it and the shape isn't super cleanly defined. But it's a mermaid. It's got long flowing hair and... A curvy, fishy tale, as mermaids have. And the legend of the Zena mermaid begins in the church in Zena. The story goes that one day, while church was in service and the choir boys were singing, a mysterious woman appeared at the church in the doorway. Framed by sunlight, let's imagine it. Beautiful. And her eyes were green and sparkling and her hair was long and flaxy and waving in the wind. She was a sight of, of unearthly beauty. And she takes a seat away from everyone else at the back of the church near the door. And throughout the whole service, she's staring at one of the choir boys, a boy from the village known as Matthew Chuella. And he was just the most beautiful singer. He had the most amazing angelic voice. And every time he was singing, she would come to the church just to stare at him pretty much. And he soon became aware of her presence Um, He kind of acknowledged that she was staring at him. And always before the church service ended, she would slip out ahead of the congregation and be gone. There would be no trace of her. No one knew where she came from or where she went. So one day, as the parson was giving the benediction, Matthew positioned himself right by the door. And when the woman left, he was there to meet her. And she smiled at him. She took his arm and she led him down to the sea. And that was the last time anyone in the village ever saw him. Years went by. Years and years. His mother, his mother who grieved for him and wanted him back and missed him and had no idea where he'd gone, she was dead and buried before the first tidings came of him. Then, one day, a ship moored off the coast of Zena. So it weighed anchor just in the sea, off the coast, and... A voice was heard in the water and she was calling to the captain. It was a mermaid, a mermaid with green eyes and long flowing golden hair and she asked the captain to please move aside. In fact I'm going to read you the quote from this um, website that I've got the story from, it's the Cornwall Heritage Trust because I couldn't do the dialogue any better than they've written it. She called, ship, ship ahoy! And the watch, looking overboard, saw a mermaid with green eyes and golden hair swimming beside them. Tell your captain to haul up your anchor, she cried, for 'tis lodged against the door of my home on the seabed, and I can't get in to my Mathie and my children. Oh. And then the captain comes to the ship and says, Excuse me, ma'am, but did you say you're Mathie? Mathie, who may I ask? And then it says, Sailors are always very respectful to mermaids who have powers to cause shipwrecks and disaster and often use them if they are annoyed, yeah. (laughs) And the mermaid replies, Matthew Truella, my husband, of course, she said. Now haul away, if you please. And the captain does just that. He brings up the anchor, and the last that they saw of the mermaid was her long, gleaming tail as she was gone, diving down to the seabed and her family. So that was how how the village learned of Matthew's fate, Um, and it's presumed ever since that he is... Singing to his sweet mer children down on the seabed.
0: Oh, I love that! That's like a little sweet fairy tale. Oh, I loved
1: it. Isn't it? It's so lovely. And the mermaid is immortalized in the church where she and Matthew met.
0: That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. And stay tuned for part two, which will be coming next week.
1: Also, you may have seen on our social media that we've got some pretty exciting stuff coming up for the month of October. So what is it, Melissa? Spill that tea. Spill that arsenic tea.
0: You might have seen our trailer for our special series for Halloween, which is called Things in Jars After Dark. So we will be releasing an extra bonus episode every Saturday in October, leading up to Halloween itself, of course, and we have a host of spooky guests, including the Salem Witch Museum, the Haunted Hunts, who are a paranormal investigation team based at Tatton Hall, the Weird Norfolk podcast, Bolling Hall, which is supposedly one of the most haunted buildings in the UK, and Jamaica Inn which is famed for its rich history of smuggling, and one or two hauntings as well. We'll be doing our regular weekly episodes on Thursdays as well, so you're going to get two episodes from us every week in October, and the first After Dark episode will be released on Saturday 3rd of October, and we'll let you know which of our spooky guests will be first very soon,
1: and if you're not already following our social media make sure you do so because that's where we post all of the updates we're making trailers for the episodes which i mean if i do say so myself they are worth (laughs) they're worth seeing we've also got a giveaway up and running where you could win among other things our very first piece of merch ever um and lots of other halloween treats and goodies so check it out i'm melissa and i'm poppy thank you very much for listening